So that's that's the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind is there's a philosophical shift around for multiple generations in our society. Discipline was approached as if people knew the rules, knew what was expected and simply chose to not do anything about it. And the consequence would actually fix the behavior. Whereas over time, research has shown us that human behavior has to be about teaching and also about value and connection. So the more that we spend time educating folks about, you know, in this case, young people about the, the error of their way and the impact of their actions on other people, the more likely they are to, to not do it again in the future. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. All right, so today we're going to do another interview in our educational administration series. And this gentleman is somebody I actually am connected to through LinkedIn. He is part of several different groups that I'm a part of on LinkedIn, not me, us. <laughs> anyway, we. we for Education Rx, the podcast, we're in a bunch of groups for educators and principals and leaders and all just different pieces of education. And he has put up some amazing posts that are very positive and very insightful about being a leader in education. And so it prompted me to send him a message and say, hey, we're doing this mini series. Would you be interested? And then we started some communication exchanges and I was just so impressed with him. So I'm really excited to hear some of the things he has to say today. Yeah. So we're talking to Dr. Michael Allen, who I think he said that he is we started as a teacher, but he comes from a sociologist lens. Yes, yes. So that was, a, I think that's an important point to make about Dr. Michael Allen. Right. It's a good framework to go yeah. into this interview with because it'll change how you're hearing what he's saying. Yeah. yeah. So let's listen. Let's do it. All right. So today for our audience, we have Dr. Michael Allen with us. But so I'm going to let you introduce yourself. If you would kind of share with us and the audience a little bit about what you do, what you're passionate about, why you're um, involved in education. Thank you so much, uh, Holly and Shannon. Uh, Holly, I'm pronouncing your name correctly, right? You are. You got it. Okay. All right. No, I, I love this spelling. It's a unique name. So my, my name is Dr. Michael Allen, as, as uh, Shannon said, uh, I would probably say that I am an ambassador for educational change. So I feel like I was born to really make a difference in how people experience education for the sake of accessing freedom and liberation for their lives, regardless of race, culture, gender, any of those other things. Um, and so for me, my I started off in college pre-pharmacy and in the middle of my college experience, I had this unique dynamic where uh my brother was struggling, my baby brother, uh, the youngest of five, I'm the second oldest of five, so much so to where he was on the verge of dropping out of high school. And so both of our parents battled drug addiction and, and we experienced homelessness and things like that prior to me going to college. So it wasn't surprising as much as it was it was the worst that I had experienced at that level and as the big brother, right? So that allowed me to, number one, figure out how to go home, adopt him, bring him back to school, raise him for the next two and a half years and get him ready for college, uh, which is which that which that part of our journey is is captured in our first book, which is called Brotherly Love, ironically. But that that helped me when I was a young college student study sociology. 
So I really have my roots and my foundation is grounded in, in sociological lenses and, and, and perspectives about the world and community. So from that, I, I knew from what my brother experienced and me being a parent young, there were a lot of pitfalls and there were a lot of students who didn't have the Michaels of the world to come in and, and sort of save them. So I wanted to be a gatekeeper. So went into education, started off as a teacher for two years. And by the time I was 24, was a principal, South Side of Chicago, went on from uh, private schools into public. Total have spent 16 years in education, 14 as a principal six at elementary and eight at middle school. That's sort of my my journey. Um, I think I think my um, passion, if you will, or my niche is humanity and how that centers empowerment for people. Uh, and it's a universal approach. I just so happen to be a black man, but I know that my, my purpose and my journey um, is really about trying to elevate the voices of all people, regardless of race, class, gender, social class, because I, I've learned very quickly in my journey in life that all of us are suffering in ways that we don't have permission to figure out. And I just feel like the reason is because of isolation and solution is connection and love and support and giving people permission to be their authentic self. So that would probably be me and my journey. I do have a doctorate in education. I studied emotional intelligence, generational status, and how that relates to successful implementation of high quality standards in schools. But right now I'm a full-time consultant that just travels all around the planet, really trying to help um, school and district leaders center the humanity of all people in their work and elevate that as as the forefront of of the next wave of of education. I think that's such a really good point that you bring out right out of the gate is that education, yes, we're talking about education on this podcast. Yes, that's our focus, but really that's at the core of how we become a strong society, how we become good humans and really figure out how to connect and work together. And so I love that you brought that up. I think A lot of people think, oh, I don't need to listen about education because I don't have kids or I'm not an educator, but really it impacts all of us. And so I think it's really important for people to hear what's happening in education, because as a culture, as a community in the United States, we need to be working together to build really strong systems so that kids get the education and become the good humans we need them to be, to be the next generation of leaders. So I love that you talked about that. Yeah. Thank you. My pleasure. And I should warn you, if you see us looking down, I forgot to tell you this I was <laughs> before we started recording. We take notes. We take a lot of notes because when you guys, we have guests that come on and say these wonderful things, we'll be like, gotta write it down. So please know we're taking notes. We're not just being like, not paying attention. <laughs> You're not responding to text messages. I get it. No problem. <laughs> Absolutely not. Phones are off right now. This is important. Well, okay. okay. So in our exchanges before you came on, we had some conversations about that we were going to do this little mini series and it was really focused on educational administration. One of the people that we've kind of had a long relationship with on the podcast is uh, Will McCoy. And he was a turnaround principal and a turnaround superintendent over the years in California. And now he does more consulting stuff as well. But we've been talking with him a lot about some of the hardships with, and I mean, he lets us ask some really tough questions. So, well, me, Shannon doesn't, (laughs) Shannon's nice. and doesn't ask those hard questions, but sometimes I'll ask him like some really tough ones that I've heard from other people or even that I've experienced, but it's a common thread. And I think a lot of teachers that I have talked to and worked closely with and special service providers and paraprofessionals and, you know, staff in the office, 
we've all had those experiences with our administration where we felt frustrated or we haven't felt led. We felt unsafe to be honest about what we're feeling. And so you and I kind of had some back and forth about that. And I really appreciate that you were willing to come on here from a principal perspective and address some of those things because I think they're big deals. My pleasure. My pleasure. I agree with you. I couldn't agree more. Probably one of the biggest hurdles or obstacles that we're dealing with right now today that's impacting how adults feel about the education system, for sure, in my opinion. So, um, Well, tell me more about that. So, you know, when I think about this, there's always been this inherent in public schools, right? Like, let's be, I'll I'll be a bit more clear. In public schools, there's, there's this inherent disconnect or competing priorities between administrators and and and, and teachers or or certified staff members for lack of better words and i remember feeling that early on in my in my coursework as a teacher and then as a as a as a young principal learning that and, and, and sort of fall fell victim to well i have to i have to push my agenda this is my mentality as a young principal my goal is to push my my agenda and i don't if the if the teachers union is going to be on board so be it i'll take it but if they're not I'll move without them. And boy, was I mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, it's so many of them and it's just one of me, right? Or any person in that seat, maybe two if you got an assistant principal or other folks. Uh, Either way, what I I think is, is sometimes not always as intentional as it should be, is that there has to be this, this sort of complimentary approach to how we look at school systems, recognizing that you know, if you're looking at administration, you're looking at other certified staff members and, and one one group serves as yin and one group serves as yang. And you can't really be effective as a school until you have homeostasis or balance and both are needed. And, and, and that is, that's just not in terms of like traditional roles, but understanding those voices help elevate the most idealized versions of schools that are going to benefit the young people in the communities who's often charged to serve. So you know, my failures early on helped me understand that uh, I couldn't, I cannot teach every single class. I cannot do every single thing. And if I can't do it, how can I understand the value of the team and how can I elevate those voices in a meaningful way? So that that's probably what I would say is, you know, when we think about how we look at the relationships between and the communication patterns between school and district leaders and and, and certified staff members that includes teachers. It could be social workers. It could be school psychologists. It could be all the other folks that fall into a similar umbrella. We're all educators in in different realms, but we fall into different seats, if you will. So that's my thought is there's more, there needs to be holistic appreciation for communication and engagement of voices in the spaces to really move schools forward. All Everybody at the table are experts, but all of the voices have to be there to make the most informed decisions. And that is sort of what I evolved into after making enough mistakes early in my career. It's just, I need all the voices at the table so we can then make the most informed decision. Even if I do have a decision that I probably will make, the voices help me understand the impact of the decision and oftentimes it changes how it's going to happen or the decision altogether. So um, those are probably the biggest things I would say without jumping too much into the idea of, of thinking about how to get teachers on board with with, uh, like you know, discipline matters and things like that. I don't know how much you want to jump into that piece, but that's something that comes to mind for me, too. Definitely. We're going to we're about to go there because I think it's a big piece. And I think when you're talking about being a team in schools, I feel like, and I'm not even sure if I could put a date on it, like 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I don't know that I could do that. 
but I feel like at some point we moved away from that and became more compartmentalized and where like administrators were at tons of meetings and not actually in the building or they were going to trainings or conferences and so they weren't there and teachers were feeling like where is this person and we're not connected or principals or even superintendents and administrators were feeling a lot of pressure from community or families and started making decisions that were sort of outside of that team because of that. And I'm not sure where that happened, but I feel like we've kind of gotten to a place where it feels very segmented. Teachers are a group, administrators are a group, special service providers are a group. And I think if we could find our way back to being more integrated and a team where we really hear all the voices and from different perspectives, I think it would make a huge difference. Absolutely. You know what, Holly, what comes to mind for me is just this idea that eventually I moved from the adults who were professionals working in the same place as me to the idea that we were a team, right? Which mm -hmm. meant that the same reliance I had on all the teams prior to my professional transition was, was incumbent upon how much I invested and started to see them for who they really were. And what I noticed within the first couple of years in organizations is we, my, our success at that level was predicated by how we made the transition from just being professionals tolerating each other to becoming a team that's working for a common goal to eventually over time becoming a family. I measure my success by at the end of this, at the end of this journey, when I'm walking away from this chapter of my life, I love these fit folks. I love these folks just like they're my family, they're my brothers and sisters. And I know that I know their kids' journey growing, going to college. I know their dogs' names. I know what's happening with their <laughs> grandparents, their grandchildren, because they're my family. And so, but you can you imagine the the power and the support and the authority we all claim when we move from you know being adults who are tolerating each other to being a high functioning team to being a family. Um, and it is there are some parts of the education system that make it a little bit more natural. For example, it's fairly common in elementary schools. It's a little bit more complex when you think of middle school spaces. And then when you move into high schools, they're so large, even in rural spaces, to where, you know, the, the principal's role is, is, it feels political, but it's it's much more of a natural machine compared to, to elementary school. So I, there has to be more intentionality in each space. It's, to me, more inherently natural elementary. Uh, it can be naturally implemented at middle school, but with some intentionality, it's a little bit harder the high school level just by the structure, by design with that set structure. But that's probably one of my biggest pieces and also thinking about, but I still will come back to this idea when I think about discipline, for example, that's one of the most common things when I travel around the country and hear principals or school leaders, district leaders talk about their perspective. There's so much pushback that they're experiencing from teachers or certified staff members. And then I talk to certified staff members and teachers, their pushback is, they're not doing anything right. Like, you know, kids are kids are misbehaving in class, compromising safety of adults, not allowing teachers to teach the way that they they are really good at. And, and so there's this inherent dissonance between the two. And I feel like the, the number one reason that we don't talk about is that the law sort of shifted over the last three to four years around how we approach discipline in schools. And, and I don't know that even when I hold myself accountable, I think I've been successful because my teachers trust me. But if I take the trust away, I've been pretty ineffective at how much I've communicated around the laws changing and how that's informed my day to day with how I handle discipline. So if restorative practices are at the heart of how I discipline today and three years ago or four years ago, 
the traditional punitive measures were at the heart of it. And teachers haven't made that transition because no one really informed them about and educated them about what's happening, the implications of the laws, right? And so, so you're coming to my office, you, you know, you send a kid that you would have sent four years ago for the same type of offense and they're back within 15 minutes and it seems like nothing happens. And, and the reality is principals know that there's, a, there's an entire progressive process that we're taking. We're interviewing them. We're having them write letters to folks. We're, we're contacting their parents. We're, we're maybe being creative with what's happening before school and after school, but we're not necessarily looping teachers back in with the communication piece to let them know, A, the law changed, so we have to, and B, there's things that are happening we just may have not told you. And that's the piece that's there. I feel like the principals who have the trust of their staff, the staff are trusting that they that believe in best intent, but they still don't know. So that's that to me is one of the things that I've noticed that's really, really um, impacting that strained relationship between school leaders and, and certified teachers and other staff members. It's just really making sure we have clear understanding around the laws that are in effect right now, how that informs what principals and assistant principals and deans are dealing with day to day. And we may need to be more creative with how we look at communication and looping teachers and other folks back into it so they're aware, can can feel supported and seen, heard, respected, all those things that matter in the schoolhouse. That's so, what a great example, because I have seen that so many times where, I mean, Holly has mentioned it on other interviews that, you know, teachers are sending students in their back in a few minutes. And I mean, I've worked in schools for 23 years and I don't know much about restorative justice but I know that's what we're supposed to be doing, but I don't know very much about it because nobody's ever really shared those details with me. So I'm sure they're not sharing them with others as well. So that's super interesting that you say that. Well, and I know about restorative justice from personal experience for myself, (laughs) but for my wonderful child. (laughs) My youngest son is 19 and we had a time when we were living in a small town in Durango where child that he was really good friends with, they were out at recess at middle school, lunchtime, whatever. And his friend pulled his pants off (laughs) and he pulled him back up and just kept playing. No big deal. Well, then a couple of weeks later, that kid was being sassy to him and he did the same thing. And that kid had a meltdown. So next thing I know I'm getting called in because he's going to be suspended for a couple of days and rightfully so that's not cool. But so we get there and the whole process was done through restorative justice. And so I got to experience that. And then I know at the high school that Shannon and I were working at together, the main high school in that town, they had someone who was doing restorative justice. And here was my beef with that as an employee and part of the staff there. I didn't see any benefit from that. And I think a lot of teachers felt the same way. So it's like, we don't know what's going on. And it's one student at a time. And there's this one restorative justice person in there doing it. Or like you said, like the, we don't know as educators what those laws have changed to. And I, when I was a little kid in elementary school, I got called to the principal's office and I was paddled with a board, <laughs> a wooden board. Uh, you would never see that now. I mean, this is, you know, ancient times, but... It's so different. And I think so many of us that have been in education for an extended period of time, not just the last five years, we're clueless to what the changes are, but our expectation is still punitive, right? Because that's what we kind of grew up in professionally was that. Can you tell us what those shifts are? Good, good, Good points all the way around. Well, here's what I will say. 
in fear of sounding too technical, like a like a lawyer or someone <laughs> who writes off. But here's what I will say. The biggest shift is schools used to make the assumption under traditional model, punitive model, that the way that we that people knew better, students knew better and they broke the rule. And the lesson was through discipline. They learned the lesson through what we did. Right. Whereas what happened now is researchers said, A, nothing about child development in any phase of life says that when people make wrong choices to simply give them a consequence, we don't learn. Punishment doesn't actually help us. That's why recidivism is so high when you look at our legal system. So what the best practices have started to say that have done large meta-analysis all over generation is that the best way to help people learn is to educate them around the expectation. Assume that when they don't meet the, the expectation or the standard, they have no knowledge, no prior knowledge, and you, and you sort of operate as if they don't know better and build those skills over time. And that patience, that explicit nature of, of direct teaching folks information is, is something that I think has the potential to revolutionize not only how we approach discipline, but how we look at creating platforms to expand social responsibility in our society. And it doesn't, for me as a school administrator, I never looked at it as an approach that was just about student discipline. I looked at it as an approach that was about discipline across the board. So when I was dealing with teachers, you this is the first time I talked to you about that. I, I'm going to assume that you didn't know better. I'm going to educate you on that. And when you have, when, when I'm dealing with two teachers or two staff members who have issues with each other, we're going to take that same restorative approach, come together and assume that both folks didn't understand how the actions impact each other. And, and let's be part uh, impartial about this process. So that's that's the biggest thing to kind of keep in mind is there's a philosophical shift around for multiple generations in our society. Discipline was approached as if people knew the rules, knew what was expected and simply chose to not do anything about it. And the consequence would actually fix the behavior. Whereas over time, research has shown us that human behavior has to be about teaching and also about value and connection. So the more that we spend time educating folks about, you know, in this case, young people about the, the error of their way, and the impact of their actions on other people, the more likely they are to, to not do it again in the future. So that's, and it's easier, like the law requires us to document the progressive process though. Right. So that's what's important to know. So if, 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 if Allie made a decision three, four times in a row at recess, it is okay to work my way up to something on the fourth time. But it shouldn't be a fourth time offense on the first time. It should easily be a quick conversation, education about that the first time, maybe longer the second time, definitely engaging the parents the entire time, looking at creative ways. Is there a person in the school who Allie has a relationship that can support them in this particular situation and so forth? So it's, it's, it's really just a philosophical shift that assumes best intent and assumes that uh, young people don't know what's expected from them. And we sort of build that knowledge over time. And it's progressive in nature, and we are required to document what's happening from from the start of this incident all the way to the over a period of time. So, does that give a, give yes. a better context into it? No, that's beautiful, and I like how you keep using the terminology. It's a philosophical like shift that we're making because I think all of us in education and families who you know when they went to school it looked really different. It was very punitive, and now it looks different. We all need to make that shift. And I guess the second part of this conversation would be how are families supporting that? Because that's the other thing that you hear from teachers. They used to be able to say, you know, I'm going to call your mother. I'm going to tell your mother. And the kids would be like, no, please don't do that. But now they're like, call her. (laughs) 
see what she has to say. So, I mean, there is a big shift with parents as well. I had a friend of ours that is a PE teacher in elementary school, and he had a first grader who came up to him and he was telling him it was like the first day of class. And okay, these are the class rules. This is how we do stuff. So that everybody's safe and nobody gets hurt. And the kid's like, my mom told me to question everything. So I want to know why I have to do each of these rules. <laughs> and he was like, well, that's really good, but this isn't the right time to question everything. And he said, are you calling my mom a liar? <laughs> you know, like, and so it was like, oh, what a, a hot spot for this teacher. They didn't know how to handle it, but there's a big shift in parenting. There's a big shift in how parents are looking at these systems, how is that impacting administrators? Because they're kind of the in-between, in-between teachers and parents trying to toe that line and keep that balance. What does that look like? It's tough to, to be frank about it. it. It has become tough. I, I think parenting has over time become more open. I don't know if I'll use the word progressive, but I would say <laughs> open. I, I think I think we we like to see it as progressive, but I, I think it's just open a little bit more as going for valid reasons. That that's that's what the reality is. I would say the better school and staff members understand their community, the longer they've been there, that does inform how much what they're deciding is understood by parents and trusted and respected. So I, I do think if school leaders and district leaders are very careful and intentional and authentic about how they connect to their school and district community, it will, we don't always, I, I, I like saying the statement to parents, you know, we don't have to agree on everything, but we should always understand we agree on matters of the heart. So so this, this young person, for all intents and purposes, is my child from the time that they come to school until they leave, and we're a part of the entire village that's helping prepare them. I know that they're not really my child, but I have to see, I have to see it that way because that's the urgency that informs how I handle them in conversations, how I advocate for them in places that they don't even know that I am. And over time, parents respect if you're if you're fair, if your actions are are, are aligned with your words, and and there is this affinity about you that they understand for for doing right by by people and, and kids. It, it it helps, right? Like I, I still think at the end of the day, we live in a society we have, where we all have freedom and the right to express. Our, our support and disdain towards decisions. And so that does complicate things if it doesn't align with the philosophy or the approach or the mission of the school. But I found that you can, it's still not as difficult as you would think in that when, when you butt heads, it, 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 it's inevitably happened to me at every single principalship in my career. It, it, it was better over time because I, I started to become better about communication on the front end, about who, my philosophy evolved into everyone has to have permission to be who they are. And if you being who you are has, happens to step on marginalized, if it happens to marginalize that of other people, then we have a problem. The problem is that you have the right to, 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 to speak freely, but we don't speak in a way that's going to cause harm to other people. And we need to talk about that if you didn't know it. And if it's okay for you, to, I'm not asking you to change your perspective at home, but we, but school isn't at home. School isn't a public place. And so no one has permission to just willingly cause harm to other people. And so that's those are more dis the discussions. And, and parents respect that even if they have, even if they are teaching their kids something different than what's happening at the school. So if I'm thinking, for example, we, we started to implement um, practices in Evanston, like Black Lives Matter Week, well before it was something that was happening in our country that at, at, at scale. We also were really intentional around 
laws and, and structures for uh, LGBTQ plus uh, that community. And there was resistance in our community, particularly from, from people of color in my school around how this would impact. They didn't want, they didn't feel like the school had the right to educate their child on this stuff without them talking about it first, which was fair from a cultural standpoint. But we had to talk about the fact that, well, this is a part of our society today. These are either laws that are in effect or they're coming within the next two or three years. And if we don't talk about it, then we're, we're indirectly saying we don't value these folks who are part of our school family. And you know, they can decide how they want to handle it, but they respect it, right? Like that's that's ultimately the, the bridge is all of us deserve to be treated with respect and honored in a way that allows us to be our true and authentic selves. And, and even folks who feel radically different, they do respect that. So I haven't, the, the danger is to, to not go toe to toe, right? Like you just right. can't, you just can't win this battle. Sometimes you can do the right, you can fight the right battle the wrong way and ultimately compromise your reputation or what you're standing for. So I've learned the true essence of just giving people the floor to speak freely so you understand the heart of what, what they're concerned about and then being able to replicate that same thing and try to build a bridge in the middle that speaks the universal language of young people. Everybody respects that in school. One of the things that I love that you're talking about is the fact that we have controversial things that as an educational body across the nation, it's our job to give information, right? We have to give students information. They need to be aware of the laws in the country. They need to be aware of the real history in the country and how it got us to where we are, ugly as it may be, you know, hurtful as it may be. We have to know these things because we can't grow. We can't do better if we don't know all of the information. And some of that information includes things that are political. And I think there's been... I'm not trying to throw blame, but I feel like media has really been a big part of getting people riled up in a way, thinking that teachers are trying to brainwash kids or indoctrinate kids. And I, I, in the schools I've worked in, I have honestly never seen a teacher try and push their political agenda on kids. They may be open about what they think, but I haven't seen them be like, you know, if you aren't sure if you're male or female, you could, you know, like I haven't seen any of that. I've seen them answer questions. I've seen when students bring stuff up, them open a conversation. But I think a lot of parents and people in the community have fear that those crazy things they're seeing on Fox News or whatever is actually what's happening on the daily everywhere. And I really think it's the exception, not the rule. But it definitely impacts how our community trusts and supports education, especially public education. And public education is huge in this country. And if you're lucky enough to have the resources in the community you live in and personally, financially, whatever it is to get your kid into a private school, a charter school, or wherever you feel like you have more control, homeschool, that's awesome. That is great. But the majority of people in this country really rely on public education, not just for a place their child can go and learn, but also for meals and structure and a lot of really positive things. So it's important. And as an agency in this country, it's really powerful. And we need to be connected with community and we need that back and forth support. So I think it's really important that families hear and, and recognize it's our jobs to talk about some of this stuff. And we're not trying to sway your kid one way or another. We're just trying to go, here's the facts. 
And if the kids can take that home and parents can have a discussion about what their values are, what their belief systems are, I think it's powerful. I know a lot of my thoughts and moral issues were talked about at dinner table when I was growing up, and it formed a lot of the things that I believe. And I think that's still really powerful. And as much as we live in a society where two parents both working a lot of times or single parents that are just don't have a lot of time. I, I get all of those things. I totally understand. But we hope, we hope, we hope that we're giving information, kids take it home and families are talking with them and helping them really decide what they're going to believe and that they're not deciding what they believe at school, but they're really taking in information. And I think that's hard right now. I think it, we're in a time of a lot of unrest. And so I think that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their brain around. No question. I, I would say there is some fair pushback, though, on the part of parents. I would I would say uh, as a parent, when I think about parenting the 20 month old, there are certain things that mom and I wanted to talk to my daughter about first. But at the same time, there's a debate, there's an inherent debate about, well, what part of this is universal and germane to our society? And then whether we realize it or not, when we send our kids to schools, whether it be public or private, they are, they're part of the village that we've entrusted to develop our child over time. And so there's, but, but when there's these radical shifts in our society with law, so for example, same-sex marriages, they, those are timely laws that are completely appropriate. Well, they should have happened some time ago, but the fact that they're happening at this particular point in time informs what's happening in society, which informs what's happening in schools. And so regardless of one's social position, that law exists in our area, it impacts the humanity of folks in proximity to our school. It could be how students see people beyond the schoolhouse, but it could also literally impact the, the respect of staff members who are literally responsible for teaching the young people. So we can't, I don't think it's effective to hide things from who people really are because it ultimately is restricting their access to, to being um, present. And I think that is a part of the educational process. So, but I, all things considered, I do think there is, as an educator, that's not just pushing the, the mission of the school, but also pushing the furtherment of our society. I, I, I oftentimes have to ask myself the question, and I, and I do when we have these new things that we're implementing, how educated are we and qualified are we to teach this specific area? So if my teachers are going to be responsible for talking about something that's a new law, how much responsibility do I have over the time that we've taken to train and build confidence and capacity? Well, what happens when this student asks this question? How do I prepare them for this? Because just because the law has changed, it doesn't mean that people are competent in, in, and comfortable with confidence to teach the content. And the variance of what's happening in classrooms is part of what parents are worried about. So if, if there are teachers who have different culture or people who are, who've, who've studied this in college and someone who has no knowledge until the law came out because of whatever reason, then that does impact the experience of each student. So, so there's four sections, each grade level, four different ways that this content is being delivered to students. And when they talk at once, there's some, there's some dissonance about what is being taught. And parents are worried about the accuracy of the information, number one, whether or not the content should be taught at that particular developmental level, and if the teachers have the confidence and competence to teach it. To me, as a parent, those are fair questions. I shouldn't just assume that the school has that. I understand the laws have changed, but the school probably needs to do a job, a better job of A, 
giving parents access to the information that's going to be covered this year and how we're going to deliver it. Um, talk about the training that we've gone through so we feel comfortable with that. Explain what is different from each developmental level. So obviously it should be a different approach to talking about concepts to kindergartners than we do with third graders than we do with fifth graders and seventh and so forth. But those are the things that I think are real fair points that parents are asking for. They're fearful over how we're approaching these things. And, and to me, I, I, I did see it when I was a principal, but I, I definitely see it a little bit more clearly as a parent. Of course, I want to know how this is being approached just because I'm asking. It doesn't mean that I don't trust folks. But the more that you're able to give me a clear linear plan that is authentic and considerate of my child's educational experience as well as their, their classmates, I, I feel more comfortable with what what impact this will have, considering this a shift that didn't exist in years past. That's my take on it. It doesn't make it any any easier, but I do think, and, and schools are asking to have the, the autonomy and the respect to be able to, to make these decisions. I do think most principals by and large, most teachers by and large are, are 100% equipped with being able to make these decisions on the fly. But the more that we can communicate, the more that we can get people access to this information, I think the more that we'll universally be comfortable with how it impacts their child's respective journey that that does align with what they believe socially in their own households. Absolutely. And I think it's really powerful to think about, again, the adults today came from a very different system where mm-hmm. philosophically there was a, just a different way we approach things and understanding that we really are trying to grow as a society to a place of not assuming guilt, but giving room for people to ask those questions. And I see even my own child, the way he asks me questions is really different than I would ask my parents when I was that age, or even now, like sometimes if I say something and he'll, he'll be like, you know, whoa. Yeah. (laughs) So I just, I think it is a shift. And I think it's something that we need, if we're aware of, we can be more in tune with. So I hope that listeners are hearing that. But I also think it's a real positive shift that we're making because it will create more equity. It will create more tolerance. It will create more teamwork and and understanding and working together without having so much tension. And I mean, I think that's ultimately the goal with making some of these changes. I just think when people don't know what the changes are, it's really hard for them to embrace it. And so it's so lovely that you're able to share all of that so that the teachers listening are like, okay, I don't have an administrator in my district telling me these things, but now I understand. Now I have a place that I could go to my administrator and say, hey, what is your take on this? This situation happened and it felt like the kid came back really quick. Like, can you explain to me what the process is now? And maybe administrators across the United States, if they haven't done this with their schools, maybe they could spend some time in staff meetings or before kids get back to school, spending some time with staff and saying, hey, this is what I have to do. This is what it looks like. This is why I have to do it this way. And this is how you can participate in that and make it run more smoothly and we can all be more effective. That would be so powerful. Absolutely. I I, I agree. I, I think the problem, whether you're a teacher or your principal, is that we, we oftentimes tell ourselves that we, we don't really have more time, right? Like our schedules are already packed. Our, right. our, our, our staff meetings are already packed with content, but I, I, I do think you can't afford to not make time for this, particularly on the front end. But the more that it aligns with your general philosophy, I think it does help, but I couldn't agree more to that point. I, I, but I do think this is inherently one of the biggest problems that's in schools 
and it's intensified since COVID. This idea that we're expected to do more with less time. We got to make up for all the academic loss uh, that that's happened over the last three years in the same amount of time that we had before COVID hit, right? And then and, and, and teachers have more things that they need to do. They need to be more masterful with whatever they're doing in the classroom, and they need to do it on one hook, one foot, right? So it's all of these different things that people are trying to make sense of. When do I do it? When where does it fit? Because I'm I'm already being expected to do more with less. And uh, that might not be resources. It may just be time. It may just yes. be. So that that piece, it brings me to, like, for example, the idea of observations with principals. When you're thinking about teachers and getting feedback, you know, I, I think teachers inherently feel that observations are not meaningful with respect to feedback and principals probably feel in the middle like they, they're, they're we probably feel neutral. We probably say, yeah, they, they give some feedback, but it depends on what the purpose of it is. But we could probably do better. Point here, though, is we the communication piece I'll bring back up and then philosophical things. So so for me, it's it's a natural process because humanity is sort of the lens that I'm approaching things philosophically. So I I can't value your humanity and not communicate with you about what why I'm doing what I'm doing and, 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 and the reason it happens that way. So that has helped me. But I think the common thing that happens that could impact the experiences of, of teachers and staff members in the building is not understanding the difference between an observation and a walkthrough, right? So we're, we're coming into classrooms, observations are longer. They're, they're 45, 60 minutes, mostly kind of, they're at least a period, possibly two, but walkthroughs are three to six minutes max. And the purpose of a walkthrough is to gather informal feedback or data so we can study high systems level trends, patterns at the beginning of the period, middle of the period, end of the period by content area, this building versus that building, but we're not doing anything evaluative with it. It's just more curiosity to inform instruction, whereas observations are a bit more individualized to the individual person according to their content area, whether or not their tenure, all of those different types of things. It's important to note, though, they feel the same, though. Like, at the end of the day, someone's coming into your classroom and watching you. And if I'm there for five minutes and I'm giving you feedback about it, you are skeptical about how valuable the feedback is for you. And truthfully, individually, you should be. Because it's not a lot that you can generalize about three to five minutes, no matter how good it is or how bad it might be. But an observation just has more stakes. It's more at stake. And it is something that we may do two to three times a year. And we're making really important decisions from it. So I, I, I think the problem for me is communication. Number one, if folks understand, here's the point of walkthroughs. Let's make sure we're going over the data so you see the point of it in our school. If you understand, here's the point of observations. We're not going to talk about those in the sort of our group space because it's confidential, but we can talk about the point and how we're going to utilize certain purposes. So if my professional learning for last year was on a focus, let's say, culturally sponsored pedagogy, that might be something I'm going to focus on for everybody that I evaluate this year. And it's important for everyone to know. And maybe in addition to that, it might be our literacy focus that we've already poured time and energy into. So for evaluation for me or the observation, I'm going to come in and focus on culturally responsive pedagogy and the use of those instructional approaches, as well as maybe our other focuses. Those are going to be the things that I lift up through the observation process. So teachers have confidence. It's clear. It's pretty straightforward. And even though it's only two to three times over the course of the school year, it's really a small snapshot. They will see value in it connecting back to things that they've, they've tried and want some information or feedback from. And it just so happens to be a part of the evaluation process. But I do think the hardest thing for me when I think about my journey is the average year I evaluated 17 to 25 staff members. 
And it's just impossible for that to be meaningful. I feel comfortable saying the non-tenure teachers got really, really good feedback, but I'm not so sure that it was equally as effective for, for the tenure teachers who I wasn't as concerned about providing that set level of feedback because they were well on their way and going out around, down the right direction. But if I could, if there was a way in the system to focus on instead of 17 to 25 staff members, seven to 10, obviously the feedback would be more authentic and beneficial for everyone that's evaluated in that cycle. And that's that's the problem that it's hard that we're dealing with in schools in this fair, whether you are in the seat of the teacher and you're like, how meaningful is this given maximum you spent four hours in my classroom with everything you've done over the course of the school year? How can you make a decision about my future and how good I am as a teacher? Well, that's the fair point. However, I would say by my sixth year, you'd be surprised. I can learn a lot in five minutes because I'm in so many classrooms. I can tell you how well teachers are taking, how well they, how fair they are with respect to their students. I can tell you a lot about their classroom management. I can tell you a lot about how they use best practices in their instruction, not just from the time I spend in the classroom, from the time I spend in the hallways, walking through the hallways. I can tell you a lot, but is it as accurate as it would be if I spent five times as much time? Absolutely not. So it's contextualizing it to know and I think it's important to just keep trying to focus on building bridges and communication. That, that to me, is the essence of trying to in, improve school conditions all across the board, no matter whether you are in New Mexico or you're in Chicago, uh, Illinois, or you're, you're in New York, you know, for that matter. Right. And I think time is something that every educator would probably agree there has not been enough of. And in mm-hmm. the United States, our teachers actually teach Sometimes between four and six hours a day, they're teaching. And so that leaves very limited time for prep. And then there's all kinds of district-wide, school-wide things that they have to be a part of with staff meetings and so on. I feel like it seems like every year they change the curriculum and teachers are having to relearn it. And so there's all these things that pull from their time. We interviewed Dr. Posse Salberg in season two, and he was talking about how in Finland, teachers only teach about three, maybe four hours a day, and then they get at least two to three hours a day to do trainings, to do meetings, to collaborate, to do all these other things that our teachers in the United States are struggling to find time for. And that's going to be a political change that we're going to have to, as a country, start pushing for, making some changes. He also cited some research that said, if you spend 45 minutes on language arts and reading, or you spend two hours, there's not good research that says two hours in one sitting makes a bigger difference. It's what you teach and how you teach it. So, I mean, there's so much stuff that we're still in the United States trying to grapple with and figure out. I think the intentions are good about why systems are set up the way they are. But as a principal, what are some of the ways that your time is divided? Because I know a lot of teachers are like, I can never find my principal. They're never in the building. But I know you guys have a million and one things that you have to do. Can you tell us some of those things? Yeah, it's tough. Here's what I think. So my philosophy, I think, informed my presence. And I think it will probably look different depending on whether or not I'm in a middle school, uh, elementary school or high school. So I would say for me, though, I my success allowed me to have more autonomy over where and how I spent my time. So so much of the principal's job has really evolved. I, I, I think about this over my 14 year, 14 year career. 
just from the time I arrived in my last district, which is Evanston, which is four years, right? So, so year one, I come, here's what I understand the job to be. It's about the same as my job had been for about the last four to five years prior to that. But by the time I hit my fourth year, which was the year I was leaving, the job was like 85% different in terms of where my time needed to be spent according to the priorities and mission of the district set forward by the superintendent. Nothing wrong, but different, right? Like that's the important thing to note. So I'll, I'll say that to say, for example, early on in my career, I spent a lot of time coaching new teachers. So I may coach, I, I, may, I may meet with a new teacher every week in my early career and, and go into their classroom at least once a week and give meaningful feedback. So you're talking about hours upon hours of watching them teach as well as talking to them. And then on top of that, I may have spent a lot of time with professional learning in the school. So I had a lot of autonomy with how that, the focuses of our school were, were, were given to teachers in a sort of universal way. By the time I was in the middle of my career, there was a lot more time spent on student discipline systems and structures and board meetings to to deal with discipline for students that that may have you know ended up in suspension or expulsion things like that or dismissal of, of staff members that and, and the resistance to that so going through that legal process safety systems so what's when you start thinking about guns being brought into schools that's radically shifted over the last 10 to 15 years and so principals are having to get a lot of training on the safety procedures and emergency responses and all those different types of things in schools and Probably about two years ago, three years ago, we've come back relentlessly to we need to focus more on academic outcomes, particularly for those students that are vulnerable and marginalized. It makes sense. But the question I think that parents are asking, teachers are asking, and even principals is at what cost, at what expense? So if I, if, if the success of my school was predicated by the fact that I needed to be out on the playground greeting kids and greeting their parents every day. Uh, and I'm in the hallways making sure everyone's good at troubleshooting different situations, working side by side with my staff. And that's going to take the first hour and a half of my day to kind of deal with those things. And then the rest of the time, you know, I'm going to spend a chunk um, in classrooms with teachers. I'm going to spend a chunk in lunch rooms trying to continue to build those relationships, maybe pop on the playground. I'm going to spend a chunk of time building, trying to fundraise, if you will, or, or repair the, 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 the uh, brand of the school or the image that the school has. There's all these different things that we have to spend our time on. And if we're not careful with that, we don't know how it's going to drive us. So for me, I would consider myself to be a compassionate or humane leader. So I invariably spent most of my time structuring a school day in the summer. So if mindfulness is going to be an approach to our school, restorative practices are going to inform how we approach PBIS, positive behavior interventions and supports. If those are the things that I've lifted up, then the real work for me is in the summer, creating a system that allows my time to be consistent with that. And if, if there needs to be 40% for student ops, for teacher observations this year, 40% of my time, and last year was 25%, then I have to move something. But I, I'll just probably deal with the before and after school a lot better than I would uh, prior to that point. So I, I guess that's a lot to say, but I, I'll bring it back to the job of the principal has become harder in the sense that we're, we're expected, just like teachers, to do more with less. And there's only so much time during the school day. So whatever I cannot get to that's a part of my technical job, 
teacher observations, responding to different things that are deadlines from the superintendent, board reports, all of those different types of things. If I cannot get to those during the school day, the, the 30 something hours or 40 hours we have with students, then that means that my, my work day is longer. So on average, I average 70 hours a week easy as a principal in my career, which was insane. It was insane. So that's that's the piece that's tough is we are being asked to do more with less. I, I think it's somewhat timely in that we should we should mind where students are moving academically, but I'm far more concerned today as a humane or compassionate leader with where they're moving socially, where they're moving from an identity perspective. Uh, I believe that if they're emotionally safe, if they have emotional literacy, if they value their identity, their academics are going to follow. All of that's going to go up. But if I if I just focus on academics and I don't think about them as a human, I don't think about what's going on in their identity and, and, and in their family or in their community, then, you know, I'm just not I'm working against the larger system. So that, that's that's the piece I try to keep in mind. But it's the truth is this when you're a new principal. You have to work at the mercy of the person who's who's responsible for supervising you. But when you're a veteran principal who's had success, as long as you're hitting the metrics that your superintendent or the folks who are responsible for supervising you have, then I think they they sort of leave you alone. So I, I kind of had a little bit of a, a shelter process in that I had a lot of success in my career. And so people let me find my philosophy towards implementing what they were asking. As long as I hit all of the, the metrics and benchmarks, no one really was was hard on me in that sense. So that's that's my take on it. it, it it's not that easy for, for a new principal or, or a new administrator to come in. So much of what we're doing is middle management is it's, it's predetermined by by the folks who are who are above us in terms of the decisions they're making now. And honestly, even above those people are the laws and exactly you know the the national established standards and expectations for everybody's role within education. And those were made to ensure that there was continuity in education across the country. And I get that. But I also think we've kind of taken it to an extreme. We've got to, we kind of have swung one way and then we swung back the other way. And we got to find our way to that good middle ground where we can do more. And I think talking about the importance of social development of students is so, so important right now. I mean, with artificial intelligence on the rise and most kids doing a lot of their learning independently outside of school based on their interests or the things that they find curious curiosity about or they're curious about. I think it's really important that we recognize kids are doing a ton of learning out of classrooms, but when we have them at school is a really good time to build some of those social skills and the skills around how to vet information that they get on the internet or, or in media so that they can be more savvy because there's a lot of falsehoods going on out there. So I think at the end of the day, it's really shifting in education what we're trying to accomplish. And the question that we're really asking this year for each of our guests, and so I'm going to put it to you, what do you think is the why for education? Because in public education, it started as a means of creating skilled workers in America. That's what we were trying to do. We were trying to take kids and give them the skills so that they could go into the workforce and work. But it's a totally different world from the 1800s. What do you think today is the why in education? Good question. I like that. Uh, I think the why in education should be. I don't know what it, I, I don't know. I think it's subjective, right? It's an eye to beholder, but I will speak from a sociological lens and my why. 
about education. It, it should be to remind folks that we're not machines, we're humans, right? And as a result, we have to center the humanity of each person so that no one feels like their identity, their community, their family is under attack or threat. As we can neutralize that, I think we get to the real heart and, and I think, or the why, if you will, of education. And it's making sure we understand that we're all connected. We all serve a very valuable purpose. And we need to invest a bit more in knowing what we've been exposed to, how to heal from it, how to reconcile, how to build new opportunities and new memories and grow and evolve together. We cannot grow as a community, be it as learners or as a society without truly doing that together. Like isolation doesn't really work for us, but that's sort of my thought process. And I think we have to consider a little bit more things like emotional safety, the permission to be your authentic self, emotional literacy, this idea of naming the emotions that your body experiences in real time and, and playing with that. Like in some ways that's the heart of SEL, but I would probably argue as a sociologist, we need to get a bit more into the weeds with how this informs the day-to-day emotions. Because if if Shannon, you or, or Holly do something that triggers me in real time, it's going to change what's happening inside my body. And if I don't understand that, that impacts how much I can share about my knowledge, my expertise, and thus how I show up in that space. And so instead of just trying to measure how technically sound I may be on a given set of skills, it's important to measure, am I actually myself today? You know, am, am I showing up after my basement flooded and my dog had an issue and I had a bit of a, an argument with my partner? Or am I completely fresh, right? Like fresh off the weekend, great time, you know, everything's good. That impacts how I show up. You know, do I see you as a person who understands me or do I, do, is this a meeting to where I know it's already predetermined that I won't be back next year? And so that's impacting how I show up in this space. So I think those are the things that humanity is the why. I think we there is no path forward in public education if we don't start to become a bit more serious about the authentic, ability for every human to be able to express who they are unapologetically without valuing others, right? Like, I I have permission to to speak my truth, but it should not be to silence either of you. There's space for all of us. And I think when we can center that in practical and tangible ways in education, we certainly will feel a lot more comfortable where our our country is going and and how the young people will be able to lead us when when they need to be, when we're retired, right? (laughs) So, um, That's a little scary right now, (laughs) especially with COVID. And I think when you very first started this interview, you made a comment about how education creates empowerment and allows people to access their freedom. And I think all the research we have shows us that the more education people receive, then all the bad stuff goes down. And so be being a victim of domestic violence, being involved in drugs and alcohol or addiction issues, being in, on a pathway to become incarcerated, all of those things go down the more education we have as an individual. Yeah. And I think you are so right that no matter where you come from, no matter you know if you move to the United States from another country, if your family are immigrants, if you live in a low income area, if you live in a high income area, doesn't matter where we are, what color we are, education, being able to read and write and have those critical thinking skills that we get from taking information and processing it, that is our ticket to be free, to be empowered, to be able to be successful and to make decisions for ourselves that are good decisions. Like it's so important. And I think humanity is a great why. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, my wrap up would be at the end of the day, we have a secret weapon that none of our ancestors had before. Emotional literacy or emotional intelligence. Right. But I'm using emotional literacy or more explicit. This this ability to be able to honor emotions that my body experiences. None of us historically have ever had full permission for being able to leverage that in our day to day interactions. So I'm thinking about the value of that for young people in the future when they enter the marketplace, be it in America or across the globe the ability to be able to understand what's happening inside their bodies, to mm-hmm. regulate that in real time and have to express that is as is powerful as being able to speak another language because we've never had permission. We had to be pro- professional, right? We, we save the emotions for home. People aren't supposed to cry here. We're not supposed to do all these different things that today we know better. And yet we're not spending the appropriate amount of time to center that element of, of the human experience to leverage the the level of education we'll have. So when I can talk freely as a black man with a doctorate about not just what I know intellectually, but what I feel, it changes how you go on this human journey with me. You can start to say, well, I've never been in your seat, Michael, but I can feel the intensity of what you're sharing through your story. And it does relate to what I've gone through in my life in this particular area. And it relates to, to Shannon's as well, right? <laughs> so I think that that to me is maybe the most important stamp on the passport to the future is how can we leverage one of the most valuable things we ha- we possess as humans? And it is our emotions. How can we leverage healthy expression of them, understanding of them, and, and being able to, to, to move that forward in, into the future? So to me, that, that I think will save the things that are wrong with our society because those, when you, when you see us missing the mark, it's because we're so disconnected from seeing that humanity of the other person on the other end. And we're too focused on that same punitive approach that has been plaguing our education system for a while. And so we're struggling with high, with the bridge to, to make that real. So Agreed. hopefully hopefully there's some value in that point. But but that's one of the things that I'm most passionate about. And every place I go, I'd be remiss if I didn't share at least that soundbite. <laughs> sure. I think you're right. And I think that is what makes us uniquely human is emotions, you know, not just the the ability to be logical because there are some higher life forms that can do some of that, but our emotions is what make us innately human. So I, I think there's a lot of value in that. Absolutely. Sure. Thank you so much for coming and jumping on to this podcast with us and letting us interview you and get your insights. I love the angle that you come from and I like your unique experiences and perspectives. So I think it was really wonderful and we appreciate you so much. My pleasure. That was a great, great interview. I really appreciate his lens and and the way that he put things in perspective. And that first statement right out of the gate about the power of education to create freedom and empowerment. I just thought that was, he, it was well said. I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to that. Yeah, in my notes I have, he was an ambassador for educational change, which I kind of liked. We kind of all need to be that right now. And I think at the end of the day, one of the main themes of this interview, even though we talked a lot about discipline, which was so important, it's such a big issue for families. It's such a big issue. Together, we can do better for teachers and how leaders in the building are managing that and leaders within the district. So it's really good to get that insight that he gave. But I felt like the overarching message he was giving was we need to sort of reconfigure how we're doing education because it's shifting and we need more time and we're stretched too thin and we're we can do better and we can really make this meaningful and and create 
good humans through this process. And I, I thought that was cool. Yeah. And the other kind of common theme that we've heard from most of the administrators, if not all, is that communication is the key. Yes. So important. Well, and I think in every relationship, that's so true, but especially in a relationship in a workplace where you're dealing with so many balls in the air all the time, like there's so many factors that go into every single day in education, whether it's transportation or food or just individual children and their experiences and how they came to school. I mean, there's so many pieces, right? And so communicate, communicate, communicate is so important. And even communicating, what are those pieces? I don't know your pieces. You're an occupational therapist. I'm a speech therapist. I don't know the teacher's pieces. I don't know the principal's pieces. Like communicating even those simple things like, oh, okay, I get why you are suggesting this or this is the priority right now. Great, I can roll with that. Well, it almost we almost need to enter conversations, whether it's an IEP meeting or a staff training that you, you know, have issue with something they're saying, but you need to start that sentence with where I'm coming from or why this is important to me so that people can kind of know those pieces. I agree. Well, so much food for thought. So many. And his really good point about emotional literacy. Yes. And I like, which is kind of what our first season was about. Yeah, we focused a ton on that in the first season. And if you haven't listened to the first season, we had some super cool people that we got to talk to, including Dr. Karen Beard. We got to talk to Therese Moore. We got to talk to Angela Griffin. We got, oh, so many good people who really talked about from different angles, from a family angle, from a young student, from a college student, from a teacher, from an administrator. So I think that is something that we all are having to shift and pay more attention to. So check out that first season. Are we going to say it? Together, we can do better. All right, you guys, come back for the next episode. It's going to be awesome. See you next time. Bye. Hey guys, I know that you're listening and enjoying this episode. We had so much fun talking with this guest. So we want to ask you really quick, if you're listening, will you please download this episode or you could just subscribe to the podcast and download them regularly. That way you have them at your disposal whenever you want. You help us be able to get the good guests and keep going and doing what we're doing by your download and your subscription. So subscribe right there. Push that button, subscribe. And download. Do it.